0: everyone, welcome back to the Buddhist Centre Podcast with me, Chandra Dassa, and it is delightful to be back for a further week, a further episode in the great adventure of our podcast. Somebody asked me during the week, what is your podcast actually about? Which is a good existential question to start the week with. Having thought about it, I would say it's really about stories, stories of people's encounters with Buddhism and the modern world in their life how do they put that into practice and of course that encompasses all sorts of things the stories that we try and tell here the stories that emerge from conversations are really about what's most important to people why they do what they do year after year after year and why it might matter to you if you're out there listening catching something in people's voices in their questions so i think that's what our podcast is about as usual, if you like what you hear, please do take a minute to give us a good review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, the myriad ways that people get podcasts. There are so many, and it really does help people to get personal recommendations like anything else. This week, I'm delighted to welcome some of the team from still quite newly minted Urge and Trust Project Adventure Endeavor. Love Fest. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. They'll describe it better. Prandiketu is laughing at the Love Fest stuff. So I'd like to welcome, first of all, the director of the Uruguay and Trust, Prandiketu. Hi, right, Chandra Dasa. And welcome to Surya who's the person I've been working with most around the Trust's work, particularly online, for well over a year now, which feels like a long time in the online world. Welcome, Surya Naga.
1: Hi there. Yeah, really nice to be here.
0: And where are you, Sudeonika? I am in my room just now,
1: my tiny little bedroom just above the London Buddhist Centre,
0: one of the communities. And welcome for the first time as part of the team, I think. I think she's been on one podcast before with us, but as a fully fledged member of the podcast team. Welcome to my colleague and friend, Kusla Devi.
2: Hi, uh, great to be here. So I'm in Nottingham currently, and it's particularly lovely to see Pranyaketu and Suryanaga again. The three of us were together this weekend for a seminar for millennial order members. (laughs) I can just about get away with that.
0: (laughs) Whenever someone says millennial order members, I just see the Millennium Dome in London. (laughs) Full of order members. That would be a wonderful thing if it was full to the brim with order members in the future. I suppose that's a good place to start, isn't it? You're gathered at Adistana in rural Herefordshire in England, which is where Sangharakshita, in a way the subject of this podcast, lived and ended his days. Fran you were telling me a great story beforehand about planting an oak tree in the garden
3: near where Sangharakshita is buried. So in the Adistana site, there is a wonderful wetland sewage system, at the bottom of which we planted an oak tree. We planted it in 2018 and for a year or two, it was a bit touch and go as to whether the tree would survive. But there we were this weekend. It was budding. Spring was coming out. The tree was alive and we did a wonderful ritual on the last evening where we made wishes for the future of the tree ratner order. And we symbolically placed it on the tree, which is, if you like, the sort of symbol of our order going into the future. So it's very moving, actually.
0: What a great metaphor. I'm glad we survive. It's good to know in advance. That's like a good spoiler for the future. We make it. We bud into the spring. So I suppose if you're listening to this podcast and you're not quite sure of the context, the Triatna Buddhist Order was founded in 1968 itself, a year after the Triatna Buddhist community was founded. They were both called something else back then, the Western Buddhist Order and the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. And here we are, having survived, planting trees in gardens in a completely different phase after the founder of our tradition, Urgen Rinpoche has moved on from this world. So I suppose that'd be good actually just to orient listeners and look a bit at what is the trust? What's it for? And what does it currently look after?
3: Actually, the trust's work is two things, really. It's firstly to preserve, and then it's to share the legacy of again and There are a number of different projects that we're involved in at the moment, one of which is Sangarakshita.org, which we're going to talk a bit about, I imagine. But also we're involved in developing image and video libraries and, well, in a way, kind of keeping fresh the place where Sangarakshita lived as a sort of memorial to him. That's called Ergian House, which is at Adistana where the three of us were at the weekend. That's the externals, isn't it? That's the trust,
0: that's the place, that's the responsibilities you're going to hold, which is all quite new in a way. We're still in the early years of a post-Sangharaksha Triratna Buddhist Order, Triratna Buddhist Community. I'm quite interested in what your personal relationships are/slash where to Sangharaksha, because I suppose your work is going to be animated by some kind of encounter, either real life or mythic, with Urgyen Sangharaksha as a figure. Did you meet him? How did you find him? How's that changed since his death?
2: So yeah, I did meet Sangharachita. I met him four times in person. It was very moving, actually, just being around him. I remember the first time, I think it was after my first visit, where I'd visited him one-to-one for about, I don't know, 45 minutes or so. And I came away on the train. It was a really packed train in rush hour in Birmingham. And I was just stood, crammed among all these people. But I felt exceptionally happy and I could feel in myself A very, very strong presence of awareness and metta. And I just felt that that had been gifted to me, actually, from being around Sangharachita. So awareness and metta being loving kindness, just this real sense of sort of kindness, warmth and presence and awareness with everyone there on the train. So that was strong. And yeah, a few other encounters with him, which equally were very moving and sometimes challenging as well in a very helpful way.
3: Yeah, so like Devi, I met Sangharachita four times as well. Actually, as you were describing him, Kusla Devi, I was reminded of, I think it was the second time I visited him where I was welcomed into his sitting room, perhaps a little bit early. It was maybe four o'clock in the afternoon. It was a kind of autumnal afternoon. It's starting to get a bit dark. And he was there with this very powerful reading light behind him. And he was trying to write something down. At this point, he was well into his 80s, probably in his late 80s, and he was experiencing macular degeneration. So he was virtually blind. And yet he was writing something down. He was trying to preserve whatever the thought was that was in his mind before he had this conversation with somebody he didn't know very well. I just thought, gosh, you know, the intensity. When I saw him writing, it was the intensity of attention and care that he was putting into preserving his words, which really moved me at the time. I was thinking, you know, this is somebody who takes what he says and what he thinks very, very seriously. I realised a bit later that it was around the time that his poem, The Wind, was written. And I wonder whether it was even related to that. I didn't know. I didn't ask him what he was writing. But I did think, gosh, yeah, there's some gravity about this man, which I really responded to, even though at the time I didn't really know him at all.
1: Yeah, so I took a few years to, in a way, pluck up the courage to decide to go and meet Sangarachita. And I went up to Adishtana. I was going up for a weekend anyway. And I'd already asked for ordination by this point. I hadn't been training for ordination for very long. And I knew quite a bit about him, but it taken a while to feel like I knew enough about him to actually have a meeting with him. I think I just felt I can't go in there when I know all of these people really revere him so much and owe so much to them. I can't go in there and just be like, yeah, I sort of know who you are. <laughs> I just sort of felt that wouldn't quite be right. So I felt I needed to wait, although I knew that he was getting to the end of his life and that I couldn't keep waiting. So there was a bit of time pressure there. Anyway, I went on a retreat where I studied his survey of Buddhism, which some people consider it his magnum opus, this wide-ranging... Incredible work written in his well, mid to late 20s that covers the entire breadth and depth of Buddhism. I was really, really inspired after that and felt, okay, well, I definitely, definitely need to meet him now. I was just very, very convinced at that point that I was going to be ordained at some point. I was going to dedicate my life to what Sangharakshita had set up. It would be really good if I could meet him before he died, just so that I could have that experience with me for the rest of my life. So I arrived there and the system was that you would ask one of his secretaries or carers. I asked Stanishtraddha if I could meet him and he put me down on his list. But he said to me, actually, you're on the list, but Bante's quite ill this weekend, so you might not get a chance. What ended up happening was Bante went into the hospital that weekend, I believe. And when I got home a couple of days
0: later, I heard that Bante had died. Mm people listening, you know, hearing the way you're talking. I've got, own well, memories of meeting Sangrusha quite a lot through maybe 20, 25 years. And it strikes me that it's predicated on reverence. Your work is predicated on reverence. And in a way, all of our work is predicated on reverence. And the term "banty" even is a kind of friendly but reverential term people use for their Buddhist teachers. And in that sense, in a Buddhist context, it's pretty normal. Most Buddhist traditions that you check out, in fact, most religious traditions have a lineage of reverence that you're taking part in. But I'm also aware that for some people listening, it might seem odd. And I'm wondering, was the translation for you from a person coming into touch with the Buddhist movement thinking who the heck are these people and why do I want to give my life to this? Was it a translation for you where you had to move into a relationship to reverence that you can remember We got it somewhere and thought, oh, this has integrity to it. And despite the complexity of somebody's life and personality and all the rest of it, which I'm sure we'll touch on, it's an appropriate response.
3: I was interested in meditation and Buddhism quite a bit before I encountered Sangharakshita and Tri Ratna. I mean, even from my mid-teens onwards, really. I just remember, on the one hand, so overwhelmed by all the different teachings and approaches and styles of meditation, of Buddhism, of Eastern spirituality and so on. And yet I was also trying to sort of make something of that myself. And I made a real hash of it. I just ended up very confused. I encountered some Buddhists in different settings and then just happened to live very closely to the West London Buddhist Centre. I remember reading some of Sangharakshita's work. I think it was The Essential Sangharakshita. That was probably my first book in. And just encountering somebody who had lived out, in a way, that exploration that I was trying to do and turned it into something, turned it into something coherent, which I could never do. And not only that, he'd built a community of other people around him who also had that understanding. I just think for me, the contrast between my own attempts and what Sangha offered, it was like, oh, yeah, you no, know, there is something of serious value in this man. At times I've worked with a sense of, do I see myself as a disciple or not? But generally, it's just a bit more impressed by him than I was by any academic philosophers I encountered when I was studying, probably almost any other human being, actually. And I just thought, yeah, I, I want more of what this guy is about.
2: Hmm. I remember particularly coming across Why I Am a Buddhist, where he very beautifully lays out what he most truly and deeply believes that humanity is basically one. It moved me to tears to read that because I also felt that. So there was definitely a heart response or feeling very moved. There was something about hearing Sangha talks as well. This is before I actually met him in person, especially talks from the early days of the movement. The energy and vitality of what he was communicating Mostly for me, where reverence probably came is then when I just started to try and apply those teachings in my own life and just saw what a difference they could make quite drastically. <laughs> I think it was that for me, that the combination of those things, of heart response, resonance, and just feeling that those practices really had an impact in my life.
1: I can definitely relate to what you're saying, Chandradaswara, about having an initial sort of response of, oh, this is all a bit weird, <laughs> or like, I'm not going to look up to anyone. And coming to Buddhism, that very first time you start seeing everybody bowing to the Buddha and that, oh, yeah, there is something more than me that I could possibly become. was a really important part in the start of my journey with Buddhism to open up to the idea that actually something could be above me and that would be a positive thing. And that doesn't sort of diminish me, but it actually makes something more of me to look up. And the first time that I went to Padmaloka, where we do ordination training for men in the UK, they were studying an article that Bante had just written at the time. He was dictating articles right to the end of his life. And at the time, he'd just written an article called Some Reflections on the Garava Sutta. In that article, he talks about how the Buddha, when he attained enlightenment, he realized that he needed to look up to something. So even the Buddha, when he attained enlightenment, even he needed to look up to something. And he realized that the only thing that he could look up to was the Dharma itself. And Bante was just drawing out the importance of this right at the end of his life, really, really strikingly, as this is really important. This is a very, very human need and even a sort of superhuman need, if you want to use that language to describe the Buddha, a sort of need that you're gonna always have. For me now, the sort of reverence that I feel for Bante, for Sangharachata, connects me to that reverence that the Buddha feels for the Dharma, because there's that lineage of looking up that goes through me to Bante, Bante's teachers, all the way back to
0: the Buddha. It's interesting hearing that, Surya I guess already in this conversation from reverence, we move into lineage as a kind of natural flow. You know, you're starting a new website, or you've started a new website. It's just launched, we'll link to it in the show notes. We can also link you to the article on the Garava Sutta that Suryanaga just mentioned. This new website is launching in a very particular way by starting an episodic retelling of Sankarashita's life story. If you're outside of our community, you might not know that telling life stories to each other is quite an integral part of building friendship. Also, in a way, training in the Dharma itself. Trying to catch what it is that's really important and really healing people, meeting them in their lives is seen as quite important. His story is obviously pretty well known. I'm wondering what changes in the telling for the next generation of Taratna folk, also for people beyond the Buddhist community who may not really know about his life story. Now that he's an historical figure and that's a necessarily literary endeavor, what changes do you think in the telling of his story and why do you think it might matter to people who wouldn't even consider themselves Buddhists?
1: Something we're trying to do with the way that we're telling the life story is tell Bante's whole life. Any story is going to be a slice. Of course, we are choosing which bits we emphasize, but we're doing that so that it flows better as a story. It's very hard, actually. We've really struggled with this challenge of Bante's character is so wide ranging. There's so much one could say about him. I think it's really important to try and say as much as possible, whilst also having a notion of how can we make
3: this still make sense and how can we make it flow as a story. We've done a lot of thinking about this, haven't we, Surinaga, Uh, about what in particular to draw out from Bante's life story. One of the things we talked about was just how much of a turning point it was for Bante to discover spiritual friendship. And how in a way, his life is a movement from quite a sort of isolated figure with very high aspirations and very lofty experiences, but sort of on his own. Yeah. You know, we're talking the 1920s and 30s in England. Mindfulness hadn't been invented yet. The 60s hadn't happened, all that kind of stuff. The knowledge of the East was still very academic and still quite dry. So you have this man who's clearly attracted to Buddhism. His response to reading the Diamond Sutra is just, it's a little bit bizarre. I mean, the Diamond Sutra is bizarre, but the uh, working class boy from Tuting would have this experience is even more bizarre. He becomes a monk, he tries to connect with monasticism, but then he starts encountering friends, people like Lama Govinda, the Tibetan lamas from the diaspora. And then in returning to the UK, then he starts to encounter people from his own cultural background that he can communicate with on the basis of the Dharma. Everything sort of flows from that, the creation of the the movement and well, the fact that the four of us know each other in the way we do and are part of this worldwide community. So it's sort of like Sangharachita's life stories are kind of widening from this isolated individual or even from isolated individuals symbolically to what it is to be part of a living spiritual community. That's an aspect of the telling which seems so salient for now. Whilst we have all these resources and these ideas and so on about meditation or whatever, it is very easy just to do that through the privacy of our own smartphones. And yet, one of the things that Sangharakshita makes available, and he's not the only one, of course, but one of the things he makes available is this potential for us to in deep friendship on the basis of that.
1: I think the question that we had when we were looking at Bante's whole life is, can a Buddhist life be lived today? Can a truly Buddhist life be lived today? And at the start of Bante's life, the answer was, not very easily. <laughs> this theme of friendship is the answer to the question, if one is going to live a Buddhist life today, then friendship is going to be right at the core of it. Friendship with other people who are practicing Buddhism and really, really trying to see into reality more deeply and take their lives more seriously. And that's what Bante established, I think, is a whole community of people who are trying to do that. And that's the sort of answer to the question of his life.
0: What comes to mind listening is this idea of there's a river under the river. When people on retreat or in community and training tell their own life stories, you're trying to hear what the underlying patterns are, what the themes are. And sometimes that's revelational and it changes as you tell and retell your stories, which I know is something that is going to happen generationally with telling Sankar story. And it's quite a beautiful image and a way to think of The River Under the River, with his particular story being a community. The community has a story, a story of friendship, a story of connection. I'm just wondering, Kousa Davies, is that something that you resonate with when you think about having been invited to tell your own story through the years and it coming into relationship, not just with Sangra story, but with the community as a story that you're joining and now you're helping bring into being?
2: For me, friendship is particularly significant. Friendship, connection, communication with others – and yeah, seeing that throughout Sangarashtra's life and then experiencing it in my own life. And more and more feeling connected with people within True Ratna, but also with people outside of True Ratna. So a significant part of my spiritual life and practice was fundraising and going and meeting strangers on the doors to raise money for people in India. And part of that for me was the possibility to befriend and connect with any human being. I think through doing that, I just felt... <laughs> exceptionally grateful actually to Sangharachita that he saw and really drew out the significance of friendship as a path. One of the visits to Sangharachita that I did was when we took part in one of these fundraising campaigns. There was a significant meeting with to where we could just see and feel the effect that this fundraising was having on ourselves. We knew it was having an effect in the world, but we could also feel it was changing us. A big part of that was our friendship and our connection with one another. And we went to Sangharachita with a whole list of theories of why we thought raising money in this way was changing us. And we asked Sangharachita, why do you think these fundraising appeals can be transformative for us? And he very simply said, because you're doing something for others. That was his response. We all kind of were sort of shook to silence. You know, we'd had all these sort of complicated theories about we're being reflected back by other people on the doors and, you know, Actually, what Sangharachita could see was that altruism centering others, which for me, that's a big part of spiritual friendship, that that really is at the heart of also transforming oneself and that transforming oneself and the world aren't really separate. So yeah, that's been a very significant part of my journey and it continues to unfold.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that even the chapter that I've been working on this week of Bante's life story is where he's starting to engage with a broader vision of Buddhism. So he's been ordained as a Theravadan monk, so quite orthodox tradition. And then he's starting to engage in the Mahayana where he's broadening out into this more altruistic dimension and working more and more for other people. I think it's one of the big things that you can see across his life actually quite a large extent. He has it right from the beginning. We've got his first article from when he was 18 years old on the website. It's called The Unity of Buddhism, and it's talking about how all of the different traditions of Buddhism, in a way, they are saying the same thing. But I think he starts to understand much more clearly and much more deeply what the nature of the Dharma is and how important this vision of altruism and this vision of friendship that you're talking about there, Kusla Devi,
0: So, again, if you're listening to this, you'll be able to follow the episodes of Sankraxla's life as Studio Mega dreams them up week by week by week. And in a week, follow somebody's journey. It is a story, I guess like Netflix, right? Except the episodes are released one by one. You can't binge Sankraxla's life story. I suppose you could if you waited right till the end. (laughs) You could stay up on the Yeah, you can binge them at the end. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You can binge them at the end. Maybe you should have a binge party so virtuous binge party on where people can binge well I should
1: say that when we're talking about these episodes we're talking about a multimedia experience as well so Initially, we were calling them episodes, partly because I had that idea of Netflix in my head. But we're not talking about videos. Although we have videos in there, we've got pictures and we've got written quotes from his memoirs. We've got audio clips as well from his lectures and interviews. And So we're really trying to bring together and make use of the rich legacy, as Pranyuketu was saying earlier, of media and, well, Dharma that sangracha's has left behind.
2: Yeah, that's something I'm really appreciating. I was looking at the website earlier I saw the image of the first Buddha that Sangharakshita saw when he was Dennis. And I don't think I'd seen that image before. And one of the reasons I felt really moved by that was that my last visit to Sangharakshita, he actually gave me a small stone rupa as a gift. And the rupa is very similar shape and style Buddha to the one that is in that image. So that was just very moving to see it there. But I did also think with the website, I know that there's an intention to reach out to people who might not have heard about Sangharachita and tell more of his life to them. But I was also thinking for myself, it's really wonderful to have all these resources in one place, all these things that I've heard and read from different places there as a story. Yeah, just making sense.
3: Yeah, one of the things I'm really enjoying about seeing Naga work on this project is how he's drawing together all these different threads. It's almost like two movements going on. So one is him drawing all these different media together, but also he's putting Bante's life story in context. For example, in the first chapter, you have access to Arnand Maitreya, who was this very early British monk who died very close to where Sangharakshita was born. The whole thing about this is it is quite a different retelling, or it's quite a different telling from anything that's gone before, in that we are marshalling the potential of the internet to be able to locate Sangharakshita in historical and wider Buddhist context too.
1: Something that's been important for me as a designer is to try and use the medium for what it is good for. The web is a very, very different medium. A lot of the time what people try and do with it is just try and take a book or something and put it online. Or even the medium of film is very, very different to the medium of the web, which is all about connecting up different bits of information. That's the core principle of the web. That's what it is. It's connected up information. And so I've been really trying to make use of that medium to tell Bante's life story. And you were asking before about why are we telling his story again? There are memoirs and we certainly don't want people to not read the memoirs. We want this to be augmenting the memoirs. But I think we need to be telling his story in a way that really uses the mediums of today. And of course, Bante, well, I mean, he died three and a half years ago. So he was alive for some of the Internet's growth. But he certainly wasn't a digital native. So he wasn't creating content for the Internet.
0: Just on that point about Sangharachita and his relationship to the Internet, I had a lot of conversations with him about this and eight years ago, I think it was. I was demonstrating some uh, digital first version of one of his unreleased seminars and using the power of an iPad, multimedia, footnotes, all of that stuff. And I was particularly interested in getting his response to the inclusion of a video clip of Norwegian death metal, which had been referenced in the seminar. And he was super interested in it and absolutely delighted when he saw that you could just tap the phrase Norwegian death metal and get a little video that played what Norwegian death metal is. He just thought it was absolutely fantastic <laughs> and was super into it. Which says quite a lot, isn't it? I mean, most people in their late 80s are probably not going to have that response. I think it's probably clear that Norwegian death metal wasn't his music of choice. But <laughs> the fact that he so easily embraced it and saw the potential was really encouraging to me at my own work. And I know that that's something that's a sort of tradition you're picking up as well. When I was thinking about this podcast, Story, biography, all those things are the themes that we're deep into already. It struck me that Sangarashita is a little bit unusual in that most of what we know about his life is through his own telling. Similar to somebody like Churchill, in a way, people have only recently caught on to the fact that most of what we know about Churchill is through his absolutely voluminous writing about his own life. And of course, that brings in his own biases and his own telling. There's the forthcoming biography of Sangarashita by Nigar Bode with Winter's publications in the works. And inevitably, your retelling, your digital retelling, is going to be coming into relationship over years with other people's retellings. How do you see the shape of that story as it's inevitably reshaped by the reminiscences of others, of his disciples, perhaps people who knew him but are critical of him, of other Buddhists, etc.?
1: Well, I guess another thing about the internet is that it is not a static medium in the way that books are. When you write a book, you write it and then it gets published. And then maybe some years down the line, you do a second edition. Usually only if it's been successful, you get the opportunity to do that. But of course, with the internet, you can iterate it almost as much as you can iterate a conversation between two people. I'm very much somebody who thinks out loud. I'm very much an extrovert thinker. So <laughs> I guess he's laughing because he's not. We've had interesting conversations about how to work together when one of us is an extrovert thinker and one of us isn't.
0: That's why we have editors soon, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think out loud, I say something, and then two seconds later I'll have to go. Actually, now that I've said that <laughs> I think that's a real beauty of the internet is that you can say something and be wrong. So we might get things wrong. Fairly unlikely that we'll do that because we have a really brilliant team with Vidya Devi and Kalyana Prabha and Shantavira all looking at everything that we're doing and making sure that it's really accurate. And Mahamati as well, who's the chair of our trust, who knew Bante really, really well. All of those people actually I've just mentioned did. We might realise that actually a little bit down the line, once we've been studying Bante's work for some years, for some decades even, after he's died, we might realise that oh, actually, there's this whole aspect of his teaching that we didn't emphasize enough. And I think that's what an unfolding tradition is. I think that's what a living tradition is, finding new things in the teachings that have been left to us. And I think that's one of the things that's really, really important about having living shrine in a way to Bante that really explores Bante's life and work and all of the aspects that we can continually go back and iterate on as we
3: learn and understand him and his teachings more deeply. And at the same time, we're continuing in that tradition that you were describing, Chandra Dasar, of giving Sangharakshita's voice prime spot. So while Surya Naga and I are lightly signposting what's going on at various points, and, and we do bring in other voices from things like the Tree Ratna story, I'm sure when Naga Bodhi's book is published, we'll find a way of bringing that in as well. But also things like the Adistana Kula report around various ethical issues in Triratna, that will have an airing as well. Our focus really is to put Bante at the centre, to put his voice present on the internet. And that's going to stand in relationship with these other commentary, I guess, kind of living commentary around that too.
0: Sangrash, as you were saying or implying there, Praniketu is not an uncontroversial figure. Sometimes he just sort of happened into it, as it were. He arrives in Britain in the 1960s and you get this impression that he meets a very staid world of English Buddhism and just is controversial just by dint of being there. Maybe it would have been impossible to avoid being controversial unless you were going to be completely neutral in tone. Sometimes he seemed to relish provoking controversy in his life. I think that's true from anyone who knew him. In the past 20 years, part of our community shedding its early skin, as it were, has been having to face very public criticism of Sangarachita, of some of his teaching, his sexual behavior. I know you're alive to the issues around this. As you say, you're going to be working out ways to bring the material in. Have you any thoughts in general about how to handle these issues in a world where it just doesn't take much effort to find negative material and some of the stories that have been told are not the story you're telling? Do you feel relaxed about that? Or are you looking forward to the challenge?
1: I thought maybe I'd just start with just saying something a bit about what that controversy is. So he came back into the UK in the 60s. And the first thing that he was controversial for was things like sitting with people who weren't a monk to eat dinner because he was a monk. And, you know, they were kind of like, oh, no, the divide between monk and lay practicing Buddhists is really, really important. And that has to be respected, etc. After he started to do more of this breaking down of that divide in a way and through his friendship, actually, particularly through his friendship with someone called Terry Delamere, he started to actually think, I'm not sure that being a monk is the best way, completely amazingly radical thing to do when you've just been (laughs) ordained for 20 years and practising all of these amazingly revered teachers. He said, actually, I'm not sure being a monk is the best thing, at least for me right now in this current context. And his friendship with Terry, who actually called him by his old name, Dennis, just the fact that he related to him as an equal really helped him realise, oh, actually, there's something very important about that. If I'm going to communicate the Dharma to people, they need to be not having all these projections about me. That thought, that realisation, it might not have been articulated like that at first. But that sort of notion seems to have been what's been so important to the founding of the order, which he did very much in the midst of this very important friendship with
3: Terry. And has, yeah, as you say, caused some
1: issues as well.
3: I think your point's a really valid one, Chandra about the fact that there is so much material about Sangha online, and a lot of it not very positive. And it's very much within that context that we are doing what we're doing. You know, Surya Naga and I, painful though it is, we are apprised of that stuff. My sense is there are valid points made in the criticisms that are made of Sangha in some cases. But largely, my feeling is one of confidence that in relation to the man who he was and the circumstances he was in, I think he did the best he could. There's a sense that I don't think we've got anything to hide in the presentation that we have. I think we can freely acknowledge the fact that there have been controversies, there have been people who've been upset by Sangha Raksata because the story is bigger than that. And I think we can be big enough to be able to hold both the difficulties, the controversies, sometimes the provocations alongside or even in the context of this wonderful legacy, actually, that we've received. I think people will encounter on our site on sangharachita.org enough of an acknowledgement of the whole man to be able to make up their minds. That's really what I want, is not to sort of corral people into a particular perspective on Bante, but to have the resources they need in order to see the man in his fullness. That's great to hear. That is one of
0: the challenges, isn't it, of this kind of storytelling, is to balance a sort of due reverence with an evocation of someone who is brilliantly imperfect or imperfectly brilliant. In some ways, yet to be fully explored and discovered. We're at the start of that process with him as an historical figure. It's good to hear the confidence that we can exemplify something online in our ability just to own it and also to keep the context bigger giving people the existential benefit of the doubt is probably not in vogue at the moment on the internet. So we have something to offer there. We're not cancelling or we're putting him in context and really holding the complexity, sometimes even the contradictions.
2: Yeah, I was interested, Prenyuketu, about that thing of the project being big enough to hold it all. That is something that I work on, that challenge of being big enough to hold all those sides. There is just something about it all being out there and transparent that is of real value to me and hearing and seeing the full picture as you spoke of. It's also just not very straightforward. It is a bit complex. There's things in there that as a community we've inherited – me being one of the young uh, I think I can still say that I'm 38 I'm sort of still just about there one of the younger members of of our community we have inherited already what's happened before it's really important to acknowledge that in its fullness so many wonderful things that have happened and mistakes that have been made along the way people that have been hurt along the way yeah I guess I am interested in how we learn from that and move forward as a community. So I'm very much feeling that this weekend. We were talking about harmony and unity in the order. And I was asking Ratna Darini, who is the chair of the College of Public Preceptors. So she's someone who's been in our movement for many years. And I was asking her, what can we as a younger generation learn? And it was wonderful. She gave me a very helpful answer, but I was also aware we still will probably have to make mistakes and be willing to acknowledge those and stay in communication with one another.
3: It's also worth saying that, we benefit so much from the people like Ratnadarani, people like Chandradarsa, and others who have done a lot of rotivating for us, to use that metaphor. People like Kusla Devi, Nagra and I are relatively new to Sri Ratna and to the order, but we're coming into quite a mature community, I think. And that does make a difference. It links into the confidence that I have. As a community, we are actually pretty strong. When we talk about complexity, sometimes the connotations of that can be pejorative. But actually, I think that the way I'm using it is as much about heights as it is about depths and messiness and purity and the whole thing. A lot of that work has been done for us. And yes, we will make mistakes, but it's on the basis of a lot of really wonderful friendships, actually. It's the working out between friends of these things between them. So yeah, we're coming from that.
1: It's really amazing that the community is in that place now. Like We're kind of still talking about that tree in a way, aren't we? I don't know how many oak trees actually take, but I imagine it's not all of them. And it's certainly not all spiritual communities projects that do, well, make it to 50 years or 100 years even. Hopefully we'll still be around in 100 years. I think actually we've got the conditions right to be around in 100 years. When Tarana celebrated our 50th anniversary a couple of years ago, I thought, oh yeah, I could be around for the 100th anniversary And I can imagine how much we've learned in the last 50 years. Maybe we'll learn as much again over the next 50.
0: In the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so, I've taken part in a number of Dharma teachers conferences here in the US. And it's quite interesting meeting Buddhists from other communities and over time realizing that every Buddhist community has gone through this at some point. Everyone has either a past scandal or upset or something that's happened and it provokes all the same soul searching. And in time, I think I've come to feel that it's quite a relief in a way. Well, you can feel that when you're with other people, right? They're just talking about their own experience. But it's quite a relief to have a flawed teacher in a certain way. I remember one friend of mine saying he was quite proud of the fact that Sangaracta was able to have a spiritual crisis when he was in his 80s, and that gave him hope. I thought, well, that's a great perspective. It takes a lot of pressure off when you're relating to someone who's not perfect, because I'm not perfect. When I'm trying to figure out a justification for my own practice life, it's in relationship to somebody who's flawed. And that doesn't invalidate the moments when I manage to be more aware or kind or other regarding or whatever it is. And I'd imagine that's the same for everybody. You're asking those questions all the time. So in a way, it's quite interesting to have another exemplification of that at a level that takes on resonance for many people rather than just us in our personal lives. Changing the subject entirely might sound a little bit more trivial, but actually I don't really think it is. It's a continuation of that conversation about the excitement of how you can tell stories on the internet. We've had quite a lot of fun imagining TikTok for the Urgain Sanghurst to trust what that might look like. I can't wait to see you and to doing current dance moves in your room. So <laughs> Banty sets a backbeat or something like that. What have you learned about the tasks ahead of you in storytelling by starting to engage with Instagram reels and stories and Twitter and TikTok and all the rest of it. I mean, it's so interesting
1: this area because the whole world of social media is so against what we're trying to do with Buddhist practice in so many ways. In terms of going deeper into our experience, relating to people with more depth, trying to see into reality more deeply, all of these things, you just are not gonna get a very rich experience of that through social media. And that's why when we go on retreat, we tell people to turn their phones off and It's so embedded into the modern world. It's so embedded into the way that we live. I've always used social media and I grew up on the internet. So it's very much part of my world. And I don't think living a fully Buddhist life is as simple as just disconnecting from that whole world. So given all of that, I think it's really important we work out a way to get the Dharma into the world of social media. And for me and for us, Banté has articulated the dharma more clearly than anyone. That's how I feel. So I think it's really important that Banté is in that world. The millions and millions of people who are spending hours and hours a day on Instagram and all of that are coming into contact with him. But it's a really interesting experiment to try and get somebody who lived in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 60s, how do you make content about someone like that relevant to social media is a challenge for sure. It's something that I've been trying to do. I
0: still love the idea of sangha extra dank memes, almost lojong style, short, pissy things that really capture a certain aspect of dharma. Invoking that through these super short form media that are necessarily temporary and ephemeral. The fact that they disappear after a certain amount of time is something built in. It's got a Buddhist flavor to it, that sort of impermanence.
2: Yeah, that excites me as well. The potential of playing with that radical aspect and re-presenting that.
1: Yeah, he was really, really radical, wasn't he? And one of the things that was really radical about him was how much he engaged with the modern world, the whole cultural revolution of the 60s, I feel like I'm trying to do a little bit of that with bringing Sangharaj to into the world of social media, bringing his legacy into the world of social media. An interesting challenge for us whilst we're doing that is that Bante didn't just engage with the modern world in a sort of populist sense. He didn't just engage with whatever was popular. He didn't just say whatever people wanted to hear. Sometimes spiritual teachers form Buddhism into a palatable thing for people. but he really didn't do that. He was really, really concerned with the truth. And when he did relate to the modern world and what was going on, he would only ever do that in so much as it could be a medium for the truth. Whenever he found something that wasn't going to actually engage with the Dharma in its essence as the truth. He just would go, okay, well, that's not going to be the avenue that I'm going to go down now. Doing research for this project, I've seen lots of quite hilarious Buddhist meme accounts.
0: I love them, They're so good.
1: I do share them sometimes on my personal Instagram account, the ones that I think are funny and good. But then some of them are like, they've got swearing in them and things like that. And I just think, oh no, are you just kind of making the Dharma really crude or not quite seeing the full effect that this language can have on certain people and that sort of thing? So Bante was really, really careful about the sort of language that he used always. And I'm trying to be really careful about the sort of language that I use representing him online. You know, it's not going to be exactly what he would have said, but at least I can try and be careful and be aware of how it's going to land with people because it's not just about making Buddhists laugh or something it's about helping people go deeper into the dharma and maybe sometimes they'll laugh as well
0: but (laughs) okay let's agree no f-bombs as (laughs) basic principle for Benny's social media account It's really cool in a way that this team has formed who are going to be taking this kind of stuff seriously, and not just for the launch of a particular website, but as you guys were evoking, there's a future live organic project that is telling, retelling a story. And I'm aware that, of course, Mokshapri is not here to talk about his work in that. But I'm assuming the team aspect, which is also a key component of Triatna's legacy and Sangharakshita's legacy, must be pretty important.
3: Yeah, it's absolutely essential. It's got to be one of the main highlights for me. So I've started this job about four months ago. Working with Suryanaga has just been such a creative. We're quite different characters, quite different temperaments. And we're both just united by this desire to make Bante come alive on the internet and social media in all sorts of ways. For me, great that we're doing this website and working together. But primarily, it's the friendship I'm developing with Suryanaga that is propelling me into this. It's really lovely.
1: Yeah, I'd really agree. It's really, really lovely to hear you say that, Pranyuketu. And I've really, really experienced that as well. That we're well, we're doing what we, we're sort of ordained to do in a way. We're, what we're doing, what we've committed to do is not just our jobs, although it is our jobs. I feel very, very lucky because I don't feel like I have a job. I feel like I'm just engaging with Bante, with Pranyuketu, and we're helping each other understand Bante more. We're helping each other understand the Dharma more through trying to go, okay, what are we actually trying to say there? and drawing each other out on that and challenging each other sometimes as well.
3: And actually just <laughs> enacting the whole centerpiece of the story. That's the lovely thing is that it's the form of what we're doing. The content is just coming together so well.
0: That's great to hear. Just thinking, the Ladevi, we've started talking in our team context of Dharma Chakra about, in a way, we are the product more than the media or whatever it is we produce week on week on week. It's something about, as you say, Praniketu, living out the vision of working together figuring stuff out together, sometimes screwing up, whatever it is. Just being in relationship and trying to make a living context of practice seems really important. So I'm personally very glad you guys are doing what you're doing and building a new team for a next-generation approach to some of this. Thanks just very much for the work and also for showing up to talk about it here. I'm sure it won't be the last conversation we have about this, maybe when we launch dankmedemsingerexta.com. Uh, Sue Naga, you can come back and lead us through the minefield <laughs> gracefully thanks very much to you Sue thanks for coming along today thanks very much really really lovely to be here and talk to you and thanks to you too Pranikito, for i suppose taking on the job of trying to oversee some of this stuff and help shepherd a kind of integrated approach in this phase of our community's life
3: yeah i'm loving it just bring on more Thanks for having us, Chandra Dasa.
0: And thanks to you too, Kisla Devi, for joining the podcast. I mean, it's nice to have somebody here again, taking further that sense of the podcast as done by people working together in relationship and a friendship.
2: Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's one of the things that I enjoy most about our community is how to work well with others. And it's one of the great legacies of Sangha as well. So thank you.
0: And thanks to all of you out there for listening. As ever, if you've enjoyed these stories, tell other people about them. Tell your friends. You can tell them at large, of course, but you can also just tell your friends. Hey, there's a really cool thing about Sangha action I just heard. You should have a listen. And we'll see you again soon for another episode of the Buddhist Centre Podcast. But please take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Find your own way to live in community and a friendship with each other. And we'll see you again next time. Bye for now.